0: Our first episode solely on Spotify. Maybe not solely, but certainly the first episode where we are now, I guess, legit podcasters. I had to search it for about an hour to, to find it. Um,
1: it wasn't listed under the old school. It was under my name. And so I went down the list. There are a lot of old schools out there. So officially, <clears throat> we need to change our, our name.
0: Well, no, I only saw one one podcast that said old school and then everything else was some sort of derivative where they added to it or what have you but I never saw I never saw another thing that said the old school mm, I'm, and I'm, so you could know. say that we are it and we are the old school, this is Dr. Stephen Bourgeois and Mr. Ross Miller talking about education and all manifestations therein um, coming to you live from our various offices, our intellectual centers of our various households would you agree
1: um, there's some intellectual work going on in, in actually in both of them I was about to do a cheap insult but <laughs> uh, it's, it's below me
0: I wouldn't do it I mean, yes. you, have, you have a good good setup there here Miller I, I do say. have a good setup yes I got uh, Tuscan orange on the walls and uh, smooth warm colors um, I got a nice uh, collection of books all of which I've actually read Oh. Uh But I do need to expand a little bit though. So I, I was about to bring that up. <laughs> you do. I need more <laughs> books. The problem is I have this agreement with my wife. Well, it's not really an agreement. It's more of an edict on her part that uh, when one book comes in, another one goes. And I tell her that you, you just can't treat books that way. It's like, you know, when one kid comes in, you get rid of the other. I mean, it's it's uh, not to make too fine a point on it, but... uh those I would agree with you.
1: I, I would agree with you in this one occasion. I <laughs> tend to um, support your wife, but um, yes, keep the books um, because you come back to them.
0: I mean, that's the idea, right? You read it and you read it again. Yes. With fresh mind, fresh eyes, fresh perspective, and you get something completely different from it. So, so what, that's the idea. So It is. So I don't know if we can
1: connect that little, um, that, that conversation about books with with our topic today maybe we can because we're curious people and we are readers and we're going to continue to be readers exactly but are we getting that in the schools probably but not in the way that we'd like right um, so so w- w- where are we headed today why don't you take the lead Herr miller
0: well the idea is that there are different models uh, different alternatives uh, to the traditional school model. And the question is, you know, what are the merits or detractions therein, you know, for each one of these? and <clears throat> I think some of them, it's a question of impracticality. You know, it, it's easy to do certain kinds of models when you're only dealing with a handful of students per class. I think that, you know, lends itself a little bit better. But if you're like me in a school that has over 3,100 students and you've got 28 to 35 students a class, you know, there's practical considerations one has to consider, uh, considerations to consider, practical considerations to uh, think upon uh, when you know s- suggesting what's workable and what's not workable. You know, so one of the things that has kind of made some headway, particularly in the age of COVID, but actually has started out in various places before COVID, and that's the idea of outdoor education. Now here's the idea so you got a handful of school districts that have outdoor learning centers and typically these are places that may be either rural or kind of like on the kind of on the cusp of rural hinterland regions and so but even then uh, the outdoor learning center is a place it's almost like a field trip so you go there you you sign up for a time to go and then you go and you go through this you know set program that the outdoor learning center has and then you go home at the end of the day, and then you're back in the classroom the next day. But what if you did all of, out, all of school outside? Can you foresee any benefits or problems with it? Um, no and Yes. <laughs> um, probably, probably no, you can't do it.
1: Um, th- there's the problem a... is,
0: problem is, you're an indoor cat, and oh, yeah, uh, th-
1: th- that's
0: your that's your <laughs> that's your prejudice, I think, on this topic. No,
1: I, there are always prejudices, but I, I think that the you know on, on this one, you know, as a teacher, you you always felt that pressure, um, and it was implicit uh, for most of the year. Uh, when the weather is good outside, the, the students would occasionally say can we go have class outside? I mean, how many times in your 25 years have, have you
0: heard that request? Uh, I've heard it and I've done it. I do it often uh, okay. because I too uh, feel hemmed in inside the classroom. And so I, <laughs> I uh, have gone outside. Now, of course, when we talk about outdoor education, we're not simply just talking about taking what you do inside and do it outside. But, uh, but I think that part of the motivation behind it is the same that there's something about us intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, that connects with being outside much more so than when you're in a room surrounded by Reagan era painted white cinder block classrooms, for example. Oh. Yeah. Reagan era. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I did it a couple
1: times, you know, but, but I mean, you're talking about something a little bit more comprehensive that I'd, I'd take some students out, you know, the students outside and we'd, it would be difficult to hear, you know, I'd, I'd be talking, there'd be wind blowing and uh, kids would drift off a little bit, you know, start wandering. You have to gather the, mm. the troops a little bit, you know, but I, I, I didn't like it. I looked forward to getting back in, into that room and closing the door and, and nobody drifted off anymore. No distractions. Right. Um, but, but tell me what you're getting at as far as more than a field trip.
0: Well, that one of the things that, you know, uh, and they're doing it a lot, you know, not, not, not that this adjective, not that this characteristic gives any extra credence to it, uh, but this is something that is starting to kind of catch footing in Europe. And then um, uh, there's various groups are kind of, that are kind of advocating for this kind of education. Now the, and what we're talking about is the idea that, you know, the best way to learn science is to be amidst those things that you study when you study science. um, that nature provides a natural laboratory for mathematical study that, um, and so by taking the kids outside, it, it, one, it provides a kind of much more healthy environment, just in general, rather than being inside the building. And of course, this is an argument being made a lot recently, but in addition to that, when the kids are outside, they tend to have a much more active mind that inside the classroom they're almost lulled into a traditional student mindset where they just sit there and allow the information to wash over them and then they pick up whatever they can but outside the mind is more engaged the mind is more active uh, and as a result of that the kids could get more out of it you know Um, and we know our good german friends you know there's no such thing as bad weather just bad attire um, and so there is something to the idea that even if it's raining, even if it's cold, even if it's hot, you go out and you're in it. And this is a means by which we can connect our world to what it is that we're trying to learn. It kind of creates a more of a, uh, uh of, of a kind of a legitimacy to what we're learning, uh, for, for the teacher, but also for the students. Now, the one detraction here is that everything I've seen on outdoor education has been primarily with elementary kids. And the question is, is this something that you think could actually work at a high school level? You take being taken out of the equation, since clearly that's not your jam, as the kids say today, but uh, you could you do something like that?
1: Um, <clears throat> I, I don't know. I mean, here's here's an example. If, if there were, say, a a forest right outside of the school for some, some reason. I mean, we're in Texas, we don't have have forests. Um, um, would I take my German class out there to explore it it, probably, excuse me, we'll cut that out. Right. Uh, Or leave it in. Yeah. That's even better. Um, I just don't know. I mean, I think if I'm teaching something like science, it makes perfect sense. Um, Maybe less so if you, if you're teaching almost any other subject. Um, maybe you can you know talk about your subject. You know what, what would be the benefits of going opening that door, going out into the forest next to the school, and teaching history.
0: Well, I don't think there's anything of a natural element that lends itself to history education. Now, if you could say that, or if you do say that. Um, that the students are more mentally engaged, or more, or at the very least, are more mentally active, it becomes a, it becomes a tougher task for the teacher to kind of rein the kiddos in. You know, they're they're sitting there wanting to pick daisies and, and frolic in the fields. But I mean, if you if you can, if you have the ability to manage the kids to the point where they can get the benefits of being outside and yet still be able to pick something up in the process, maybe there's something to it. I mean, I go outside mainly because I'm tired of being inside. And, um, I do seem to get more participation participation is a big part of my classroom. And so I do tend to get more of it outside and I do tend to get more of it from people. I don't necessarily always hear from in the uh, classroom. So maybe there is something to it. I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's a natural, um, uh, a natural kind of, um, uh, benefit for teaching history outside, but uh, but for what it does to students it could be beneficial
1: i could see i'm mean, going back to elementary the idea of recess is, is interesting i think um, there's a bell and the kids run crazy because they're cooped up mm. and they, then they run back in and and it takes a while to settle everybody down and so forth but it's probably a positive experience um, there are schools that are actually set intentionally in nature um, and they actually let let students go out and, and explore and so they're not supervised necessarily and you know to me that would be beneficial you know we're we're you and i are talking about a real controlled um, situation where we have our our flock right right with us and at least that's what i'm envisioning sitting um, at our feet sitting at the
0: feet of the master as it were
1: that's right. We picture the, you know, the, the steps, you know, in, in Greece, uh, yes. with us, you know, leading the, the, the discussion.
0: Um, but- Psychologists. And there's been some educational experts, including a couple that we're familiar with, uh, uh the great, and certainly well-known Finnish educator, uh, piece of Solberg talks about the notion of play and that play is a form by which we tend to learn a great deal as kids. Now, to my knowledge, no neither him nor any of the other folks that I've, you know, listened to and read have made a connection or an attempt to connect outdoor education to high school. But I wonder if it does not have applications. Well, it's probably the the idea
1: of, of choice. You know, we can talk a lot about Finland. They one thing they avoid is, is the traditional model where, where kids are cooped up for eight hours i mean they have a much shorter uh, school day and and the, and the the free choice options are you know i would expect you know motivational uh, mm-hmm. for students so that, i think that that does lend itself to being you know out, you know outside as well mm-hmm. um, trying to think how how the Finnish model would would align with, with what you're talking about you know i'm still hung up on on the idea of a field trip you know, which right. you know, is pretty structured and, and you get in a bus and, and, and go out. Right. Um, but um, so maybe flesh it out a little bit, you know, how, how it could be more than a field trip.
0: Well, I mean, I think for, I think for any attempt to try to implement any aspect of this, and this is the problem that a lot of times schools run into here in the United States, they see something work <laughs> elsewhere and they think to themselves, we need to try that here, but they only tried either in isolation or they only tried in small doses And they're looking for the same results when in actuality, what they're looking at is is only a part of a larger contextualized kind of idea about how schools are run and nothing works as it should in isolation. And so I think if you were to try it here, it would only be kind of like a one off unless you create an entire school of that model. I think it could work, but as far as like implementing it into a traditional elementary school, for example, and we're, I'm me more so than you, I'm really out of my lane here talking about elementary education, but I would imagine that any attempt to do this it's just, as I said, it's just a, it's just a field trip And and it, and you don't get from it, what it is that you want to get out of it, you know, unless you are full board on and you're outside every day, no matter what it's like outside, no matter how scenic or bucolic your environs may be surrounding your school. I mean, it's just, I mean, that that's the only way I think that makes this work. To that point, another idea, and we've talked about this a lot, another alternative that people tend to think about when they think about alternatives to American schools is a school that does not have tests at least not tests in the traditional sense. What is your experience or what is your knowledge of how this has worked or at least has been attempted in other schools here in the US?
1: Well, I, I think that when we think of a, a test, we think of you know, multiple choice short answer, pretty easy to assess. And then there's there's what they, what our friends in Germany do where they spend the whole weekend grading essays. Uh, right. And complaining about it, um, <laughs> but they they really do spend that much time. Um, so I, I would say that anything that's not a standardized fill in the blank multiple choice test uh, is is harder to grade, and and teachers um, don't like to necessarily give themselves extra work like that. So right. when you drop a open ended or an essay, you know even a, a paper, you're you're committing quite a bit of time to it. Um, but the thing about testing, you know, that type of testing, it stays in your classroom, right? I mean, mm-hmm. how many essays have you graded over the years? And then how often do you share those results with your school administration and, and they're posted on the, the the school website aggregated? I mean, that that's a classroom test. It's your world. Right. Um, right. And, and so I, I think you know, any, you should do a lot of different types of testing there. And and really, there there's the informal testing that happens all the time. You're asking, I mean, you ask hundreds of questions during a you know hour long class, and the, and that's a test as well. Right. Um But um, I guess when the when people start looking at at the results, and we're talking about standardized testing, uh, it does something, you know. And I guess. You know, that's kind of what you're getting at. The, the standardized test is different than the, the test that you just devise
0: yourself. Well, not only that, but what you get from it means different things, you know, is in, and this is what you kind of alluded to. I mean, I think one of the reasons why um, I think administrators like the idea of the standardized test is because it provides a standardized answer, not just for the student to to, to pick, but for the but for the administration. To extrapolate, you know what these test scores mean, and um, the problem is, and, and you've said it, and other people have said it, um, that the easier the test, the less valid, and the easier the test is to grade, the less valid it potentially is. And with our German friends, we find ourselves at a bit of a crux between our ideals and our practices, because we're sitting here thinking to our, because the Germans, of course, you know, they sit there and they'll say they'll complain about it. You're right. And part of it is because, well, our very, very, very good friends, uh, uh, do that. But I think that they also want the easier model and we're looking at it from the point of view. Well, it's like that first guy I interviewed with, you know, the, the bleeding edge of technology, you know, where I sit there and tried to trumpet the the cutting edge of technology and he's already, he's already coming from a point of view of having seen it in, in, um, practice and it doesn't work well, or at least in his experience, it hasn't worked well. And so when we hear our German friends our very good German friends complain about having to sit there and great essays all the time. And they wish they were a little bit more like us. We're sitting here going, well, eh, maybe, it's, maybe it's not that bad where you are. I mean, it's more work, but uh, maybe you got a better product, you know, the, the idea of, a,
1: of testing as, as I guess we've discussed this as a technology testing as a technology um, to efficiently gauge how your students are doing and give them feedback in a hurry. You know, the most extreme example is the scantron test and, and we've all done them. You know, I've, I've spoken out against them. And then when it gets to be early June and it's about to release for summer, I'm, I'm at the scantron in line waiting. And there's a line of teachers. Right. Um, you you hear that noise of the wrong answers. You know, you're not getting scanned for the right answers and, and so you, you eventually then maybe there's 100 questions in, in the, and you're going to see students with 70, 80, 81, whatever. Um, my, my thought always, and maybe you do this too, before I scan it through, I look at the name. You know, So I'm not just using it as a technology, but I, I look at the name and I predict, okay, the this, this, this student's going to get an 84. Run it through 84. Wow, pretty good. And, and <laughs> remarkably close. So what does that tell you? you know, why are we going through that? procedure when you know a good teacher already knows what their students know and they're never surprised Um, but that technology and the this the sounds of those wrong answers clicking um it's kind of a uh, an attack on the teacher because that's your failure as much as the 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 students
0: all those clicking noises well scantron machines have gone a long way they don't make that clicking noise anymore so you can wash your guilt away <laughs> why no, no, not hearing the, not hear in the clicking but they uh, have the quiet non-clicking version now yes oh. and you 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 go about your day uh mentally unscarred and uh spiritually <laughs> spiritually unscarred well because there's a there's a line of teachers behind you and they give you the look wait a minute yeah. <laughs> Now, now, now it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, that, uh, guilt, that, uh, that silent judgment from behind you is not there. So,
1: wow. Well, so what, what, what about that kind of testing? And then we can get onto the standardized testing, you know, that is a little bit different. Um, uh,
0: but, but, but the you know, question see, is, is yeah. that what other kind of models are out there? Uh, what other suggestions as to right. how you do this? Now you mentioned essay, uh, but there are other ways that you could go about this. Well, if you want to get more
1: inefficient than essays, the thing about an essay is that you have a group of students writing the essays at the same time, if it's a test, right. and then they're done, they hand it in to you, and then right. you go home and sit at that nice desk you have, and, and you correct them, it takes you three, four, five hours, and you come back and you give them a number, right? Uh, yes. I mean, you probably write, write some feedback because you're generous about that, but Maybe the students are more interested in that number at the front uh, and maybe the little smiley face if you give those, which you probably don't. Um, but that's no it. No smiley faces. No smiley faces. but, but No so faces. Good. But the comments, you know, to me would be the essence of the, of the essay because it's sort of a dialogue. And, you know, I think that everyone is, is so interested in turning that into a number um, that that exercise is, is wildly inefficient um, but but if you want to take it a step further, the, a more inefficient type of assessment would be a conversation. You know, maybe a, a imagine your, yourself at a desk, and you've done this before with a, a student or a group of students, where they defend what they know—an an oral test. Right. It's in real time, so it's a it's a scheduling nightmare. I mean, your other students are sitting in the class while you're out. Um, maybe in the hall or something doing these conversations. So practically, mm-hmm. it's really, really difficult to execute. But I would say philosophically, you know, it's a better way because you can ask follow-up questions. When someone writes an essay, You know, they're putting their thoughts down, but you can't really question them. The, the dialogue is over and the, the process ends when you write that number on the top of the test.
0: What is interesting is that the idea of the conversation, mm-hmm. yes, horribly impractical, yet you know, there are various subjects, and there are various teachers that do it. Uh, for example, you know, some of our foreign language teachers at our school uh, do kind of a model of this. So they do it in the form of, you know, you're speaking the language, you know, we're going to talk about this, you know, be able to, you know, and I know that there's also the notion of not necessarily prepared questions, but prepared ideas of what it is you're going to discuss. And, um, but there's two elements of the idea of the conversation. One is impractical co- to do, because I have a I got a classroom of 25 or 28, 30 plus kiddos. It doesn't really, you know, how do you find the time to have a conversation with every one of them? Uh, uh, and, and then in addition to that, all the other classes that I have. From an administrative point of view, it's problematic because they can't defend it. Because um, the essence of a conversation is the understanding that the teacher is the expert in the room right and so when a t te- when a parent complains about something on a on the you know as far as like a conversation kind of assessment the only thing they have because they can't see the test they can't see like a multiple choice they can't see what the different options were and so therefore the only thing they have to attack is the teacher's ability to to adequately and professionally and competently assess whatever it is the kid knows or doesn't know okay so you said it's not defendable meaning it is the the grade that you put in the grade book exactly so the so the administrator who's now having a conversation with the parent has no well he has no he or she has no grounding to to defend it other than to say well that's a good teacher the teacher knows what they're doing if the teacher says that that's the grade then that's the grade that, that's not something you hear a lot nowadays. You know, it's not, no. it's not something you see a lot.
1: No, never. Um, you know, and, and maybe there are, I mean, it's what you're getting at also is that it's it's pretty subjective. Um, yes. I mean, grading an essay is too. You're not really defending that. I guess you're going on record with maybe if you have a rubric, which I hate, I hate the word. I hate even saying it. Yes. Um, but but yeah, and grading a, something oral like that, what do you do if a parent complains,
0: you know, what can you do? Well, the only thing you can do is, you know, and it sounds, it sounds cocky and it sounds conceited, but you sit there and say, well, I know what I'm listening for because I know the subject. And so therefore if a student is on or if the student is not on, I know. How do you explain that to a parent who does not have the education or the training in your particular field? I don't know how you explain that other than to say, I know, I know the difference between a kid who knows what they're talking about and a kid who doesn't, but that's very unsatisfactory. If you're a parent and you're trying to figure out why your kid just failed or didn't do as well as they wanted to do, or thought they could do that's, that's small consolation for the parent who doesn't know where to proceed from there, particularly because the parent has been trained just as the kids have been on standardized testing, you fill in the bubble and by God, the right answer better be between a and D. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, let, let's picture that type of test from the, the student's point of view. I mean, you have some outgoing students who are happy to talk and it's hard to stop them from talking, <laughs> but others would, would find that terrifying. know, to be one-on-one for example, in, in front of here, Miller, um, defending their knowledge. I, um, I had some bad experiences in in college. This was early before I, mean, I was actually an undergraduate, um, in 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 music. But I was taking some German courses a little bit above my head, and I so I became a German speaker much later when I was working on my masters and around Germans. That's when I learned to speak. But early on, it was a struggle, and mm. I've never talked to you about this, but. Yeah, you know, I was. You know, it was. It's. You're in class and you can't totally understand, and you're. You're. You know, kind of faking it a little bit. But this uh, professor, you know, was a German and very much old school. And at the end of the semester, um, you schedule a time and you go into his office and sit down. And and the the conversation was uh, was in German. And he asked, and this was a about you know, intellectual history in Germany. So it was pretty high level stuff, and right. I didn't have the tools to to answer. So he would ask a question and I pretty much just sat there and, and, and he asked, and then he said, nichts, which means <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Uh, and then he'd ask another question. And, and by the time I, I, mean, I faked my way through a few, but um, it wasn't a great feeling. As you walk out down the stairs, right. you're thinking, well, what was that? Um, and I'm a pretty good student, but I was blown away. I was not ready for that. And I, I kind of froze so picture your your students, you know, some of them,
0: how do they handle that? Well, I mean, you, you can imagine your feelings and then kind of multiply that mm-hmm. with the feelings that a high school student might have, plus right. the natural insecurities of a of a person who's not fully developed yet, maybe not fully confident yet in whatever it is that they mm-hmm. want to be able to do or or want to be able to show. Um and so that's but but here but this is this is this is what you would get though. So if you said that. Or if I said that I was going to do a test and that everybody had to individually come to my classroom and s- subject themselves to a 30 minute conversation on whatever history topic I choose to talk about. One of the things that the vice principal who gets the complaint from the parent, because they ain't talking to me, they don't call me, <laughs> they're going to call the vice principal. Right. The, the thing that they will hear is, well, my student just isn't comfortable talking, you know, and I say, like, how's that possible? And did this, you know, um, I remember talking to a parent early in my career. Well, my kid just doesn't, she doesn't feel comfortable asking questions. I said, it's because she doesn't know anything. That's why she doesn't, that's why she's not comfortable answering, asking questions. Cause you have to know something to ask a question. That's the, you know, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the paradoxes in learning is the idea that to ask a question is not a sign of a lack of knowledge. You know, it may be a sign of a, of a lack of knowledge of a particular thing, but you have to have the knowledge to formulate the question. So you said you have that to, to
1: a parent? You, you said you're you're
0: basically saying your student's not smart enough to ask a question? No, I didn't say she wasn't smart enough. Okay. I said she was not prepared enough because what it was okay. was she was not reading. She was not preparing herself for class. And so I was saying that the reason why your kid's not one to ask questions is because they don't know the questions to ask because they have not prepared themselves appropriately. And so I, you know, and this, and this is part of the issue with, you know, doing something like this, uh, is that that's some of the feedback you'll get. Well, my, my, my student's not comfortable speaking, you know, in front of the teacher. Well, and, and so what will happen is that the teacher will either be forced to overly, um, I don't know what the right word is, but to, to kind of um, I I didn't bring my thesaurus this time, uh, but to um, give extend a great deal of latitude to the kid who is not comfortable speaking in front of the teacher. And automatically, as soon as you do that, you might as well stop the assessment because the assessment is not what it was intended to be. You might as well go back to the scantron machine, you know, because at that point, you're not getting a true, authenticated, authentic, authenticated answer from the kid. Well,
1: uh, along those lines, there, there, there's also the, the group assessment. And I, I know the application is typically project-based learning or, or even when you do a project and, and projects are um, challenging to, to create a good one because typically you get the same uh, product from every, every student and also the same way to deliver the material. And and that's considered a test sometimes. So the mm. students create something, you know, with all these steps. So they're really not creating anything; they're just following the steps that the teacher gives, unless it's a really good project. Um, but then there you have them <clears throat> lined up there, waiting to you know, present their, their two or three slides in the in the PowerPoint. You know, they don't take questions typically, or, or if they do, that's it's pretty awkward. Um, but that's a I guess a form of assessment, and 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 I would rather question each of those students, you know, in front of God and everyone right right, right there. And, and that's a great opportunity to do that. But, I, you know, I think from a teacher's perspective, you try to avoid embarrassing, awkward moments publicly, mm. you know, and, and <clears throat> you know, that, that would be built in if you're so, so really you're, you're left with what you said before of really doing a private conversation uh, with them. You, you can't really question a student in public like that, unless maybe high school kids who are comfortable with it,
0: Um, but awkwardness, you know. And it begs the question because you and I, I think you and I, we're doing some research on something that we were writing and we came across an article from somebody suggesting that Western education's uh, fault is that they are unwilling to put the kids in embarrassing or particularly uh, difficult situations. Or we are more likely to bail our kids out uh, by not letting them twist as it were in the wind, if they don't know an answer. And the question is, is there something to the idea that we're doing our kids a disservice and that some of the different models that are out there are based upon demanding more from the student and telling the student, you need to be prepared to put yourself in this rather difficult situation. That's kind of the
1: the tension. I think you identified it, you know. And I think both of us have an idealistic side where we want students to to be able to make choices and um, ruminate on material and, and not be forced into a test maybe too soon when they're not ready. Um, but on the other hand, we 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 feel that um, being challenged is is, is important and putting a student on the spot, uh, they certainly learn from it if if you. Um, Try to avoid that. They're they're not going to be able to push push through that. So there, there's there's somewhere in between there, you know, might be the answer. But it's um, the the problem I see is, is that schools don't you know school leaders don't really encourage um, their their teachers to get out of the the box of here's your you know test every six weeks or something. And often these tests are devised you know by the district. And I don't know if you have district made assessments, but that. Yeah, that slows everything down. You really can't be a creative tester when, when the other tests are coming from above.
0: Well, I, 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 there's, there's two issues here. One is that administrators do not encourage teachers to get out of the preconceived box. And even if there was a semblance of freedom given to the teachers, the teachers would often put themselves in that box uh, because they, they they don't want to they don't want to mess with whatever the consequences are the you know the issues are you know with that kind of testing you know so i think um there's a lot of there's a lot of concerns about how you do things in this way and um yeah so I i don't know where i was going with that but i mean i but i I'm think that's true either um, but, uh... <laughs> it sounded good in my head before i started but then i realized shortly thereafter i wasn't making a lot of sense so well it's, it's um, just like being just like being in a classroom
1: <laughs> yeah being in a classroom on the other side yes um, well giving giving tests is um a way for a teacher to have control mm. you know I've, I've observed a lot of classes since i left the classroom and it's it's almost like uh the the teacher is a lawyer up in front of them and, and they're saying now this is going to be on the test and this is and uh, you need to be able to do this but it's really specifically they're talking about the test and i, I did a little count of how many times the the teachers say the test and, it, and it's a way to control students and you know particularly if you're not good at classroom management you say one thing you say i'm going to tell you all what's on the test the notebooks come out maybe for the first time, right? Writing, <laughs> writing it down, and so we've we've created a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of test takers, but not necessarily um, students that you know that we envision you know being creative and following their interest.
0: And that's the difficulty when they come into a classroom like mine, because they'll ask, "Is there like a guided?" Is is there a guided reading form that we can fill out as we read? I said, no, just write notes, you know. Uh, Do we concentrate on the uh, vocabulary? Um, It certainly wouldn't hurt to know what the vocabulary (laughs) is, but the problem is is that you then you lack a contextual understanding about the vocabulary. And so there's many different uh, pressures Mm -hmm. uh, from both students and from parents to give the kids some sort of heads up um, about what's going to be on the tests. And I find it interesting to say no. <laughs> so I, I don't have notes. I don't send out notes to my students. Uh, although some teachers do, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that, but, but the problem is, is that it does what rubrics do. You, you made a kind of a, 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 a shot across the bow of rubrics earlier. Um, mm-hmm. but our issue with rubrics is that it limits the exploration. It limits the learning process, right? Because then all the students have to do is know exactly what's on that rubric. And then they don't have to know anything beyond that because the students are doing what adults do. You try to minimize the hassles that you have to go through to do something, be it at work or life or family or you know whatever. And then, you know, you go about your day. And I'm not sure that's our job to cater to that, you know. Uh, I understand that the students have to make a business decision because they may have like seven AP classes and they're sitting there trying to figure out how they're going to balance you know, all the AP classes and what they have to know. I understand if a decision has to be made to focus on one at the risk or at the expense of others, but that's certainly not my job. That's the kid's job to make that decision. That's not my job. My job is to do the class the way I think is best for their ability to learn it. And so to that end, I say, that, hey, listen, test question could be about anything or everything, you know, and you just have to be prepared for it. Me giving you a guided reading thing is going to limit what's going to be on the test where I'm saying there's a limit to what's going to be on the test. And that's a problem, I think. Now, the rubrics. I will say this. So I teach an AP class, AP U.S. history. And so, therefore, I am kind of wedded, shackled and tied, bound at the altar to the rubrics that govern at least the essay portion of the, of the course. Okay. Here's one thing I like, and I don't know if they did this on purpose or if it just developed this way, but all the essays have a last point that uh, you, that AP teachers affectionately refer to as the unicorn point. Unicorn. Okay. Yes. And it's a point that is, given only when the totality of the argument is such that it warrants an additional point because of its completeness, its complexity or what have you. And I think last year, I think I heard a statistic last year or the not last year, but the year before last when we had a normal scenario, that less than 2% of all people who took the AP US history exam got the seventh point on on the DBQ essay. Something like that. I mean, I could be wrong and there could be people right now listening. The tens of listeners that we have could be screaming, saying that's not right, but there's nobody it, listening anyway. There's nobody so <laughs> doing this for ourselves, but, but it's something like less than 2% got that unicorn point. And I've always seen it and I've always couched it to my students. You're going to either get that or you're not going to get it. You trying to game that. And this is the, and this is the great thing about that last point. You can't game it. You either have it or you don't. You either show it or you don't. And that's what I like about it. it. It creates this little this little pocket of uncertainty with a group of kids who are used to everything being certain, laid out, spelled out, this is what you do. this is how you get that point, this is how you do this, that and the next thing. I kind of like it.
1: I like the name. I think it's 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 beautiful, but but you know that that could be a testing strategy across all subjects. yes, you know the the unicorn point and you know it when you see it. Right. Um, because once again, you know, the students are lawyers. So they'll get up their little, their questioning. They'll, they'll ask questions. You as mentioned questions, but if you're talking about grades, they'll ask you all. Know, so does the unicorn point need to be three or four sentences and a full paragraph? Um, you know, they'll, they'll try to figure that
0: unicorn point out and deconstruct it for you. And I enjoy when I have, when I get to say, you can't game it. You <laughs> cannot figure this out you know, you're, you're going to have to come to it organically, you know? And I think there's something to the idea of how we test, you know, and, and the rubrics, there's all kinds of problems with rubrics, you know, but um, I kind of like that little kernel of what perhaps assessment should be in general. Yeah. Well, know, me, well think ahead. about, think
1: about that, that unicorn idea. I mean, what if that were the, the central um, element of the test? You know, everything else is, I mean, just think about waiting, you know, maybe 40% is your unicorn point and the rest, something like that, because what you're getting at is the students need to have unique interests. They need to pursue the topic, you know, beyond what you present to them in your brilliant lecture or or what they read about. Um, (laughs) So, so in a way we're, we're creating tests that are working against our ideals you know, by, by giving them rubrics and, and even the multiple choice, I mean, multiple choice is an American phenomenon. You know, yes. you, don't, you don't see it too many other places. Um, and, and we've done the, the same thing and, and maybe not enough
0: unicorn questions. You know, where I learned that multiple choice is an American thing is I remember asking a friend of mine, how do you say multiple choice tests in German? <laughs> <laughs> he says well, I don't know. We don't <laughs> have them. I don't know. Right. You know? So, uh, uh, and I think a lot of, I think a, I think there's a lot of folks beyond our very uh, bountiful borders um, that are quite quizzical and befuddled about the nature of multiple choice, simply because it's not a legitimate. If you give the kid the answer and they recognize it, do they really know it or are they just recognizing an answer? And so, you know, and you stumbled upon something that I've had conversations with. I've had students beat themselves up five ways to Sunday, trying to figure out how to get a good grade. And I said, it's not about, it's not about finding the tips and strategies. If you approach the subject honestly, the grade decides itself. You know, I mean, it's, it's, if you attack, if you attack the subject the way you would attack anything that you're genuinely interested in knowing, the grade grade will decide itself. You don't have to worry about it. You know, and I and it, it creates, you know, it cre- you know, this lack of alternatives that we have in some ways for testing or assessment or just schooling in general. You end up having these conversations with kids and they can't they can't see it. They don't understand it.
1: Well, there, there's a, a context where, where where students really don't. Even expect a grade, you know, for example, a- after school athletics say you're on a basketball team, um, they're working really hard for that, they care about that. They're not the idea of a grade is not even on their mind, and then the coach doesn't use that to motivate them. They have all kinds of motivators, including fear and um, but also winning and in, in the team element, but nowhere in there is a is a an assessment, mm. um, you know, of the individual. I mean, there, there's a natural assessment because you win or you lose a game, but, but there's something that happens in when the students choose to do something, you know, that they don't need a, an assessment. I mean, I, I feel the same way about, about music, you know, students love it. And they you know, the, the assessment would actually slow them down. And I mean, imagine that, I, I mean, let's think about this podcast. If we're getting graded, you know, we have a professor, some old old guy who's, who's watching us and saying, Ross, you get a 37 wait no probably an 87 right I was being unkind um, <laughs> you know, Dr. Bourgeois um, you, you've outperformed Ross by about two points this week
0: something like that and then I mean, what would sense. we do would that affect our behavior well I, I think like anything it depends on how you take criticism I mean right. you know how do you how do you accept it how do you internalize it how do you respond to it you know are we going to be like some of our more neurotic former students? you know, and, and go off the rails a little bit. Are we going to be like Mr. Hart at the end of the film on the beach, taking his grade, making a paper airplane out of it, throwing it into the ocean. You're talking about the paper chase, the paper chase. Um,
1: I, I like know. that image, um, <laughs> but, but we're not training students to be uh, Mr. Hart in, in, in that movie. Right. Uh, we're, we're training them that the grades matter. And that when they get to the dinner table and the, the, the dad asks or the mom asks how do how are you doing in school? They'll they'll give you numbers, right? Um, you know, and 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 maybe we we've done some things that work against us in terms of assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time, and again we're dating ourselves, when when you gave a grade, it was a, you know an A, B, C, D, or F. Maybe a plus or a minus, but but the, these are pretty broad categories that would include now 10, 10 percentage points uh, in there. Um, but at some point, we went to the number, you know, a scaled number, a continuous variable, right? Um, and, and that uh, fosters you know, more attention to the actual number uh, than than just the category. So that's a, that's a simple um, thing that that we've done that really hurt us, but also teaching um students about the grade and and their gpa which is numerical we're trying to turn knowledge of something into a a number that even has decimal points i mean think about your your class ranking and your your top students we're going down to the hundredth you know so so we what have we done you know because of our ability to do math maybe or, or but the, these categories have gotten maybe too narrow. Whereas that unicorn point, I just want to keep saying that is really broad, you know? And so we've gotten narrow in our assessment.
0: We have looked into our soul and the enemy is us. And I, we, we started this conversation by talking about, are there any kind of practical, workable, legitimate alternative models that we could particularly, that we could uh, perhaps embrace. And what we have determined is that there is, it can happen The problem is is that it will always come down to whether it's practical or not. My issue is is us pretending that because it's not practical it's not legitimate. And because what we do is efficient it's more legitimate. So it's almost like we're convincing ourselves that what we're doing is better when in actuality what we need to what we need to face is that what we do now is a compromise and it's not a good kind of compromise it is a compromise where we slowly become worse at what we profess to be able to do and and i know that from time to time you have to compromise but at the same time you also have to be honest with what the effects or what the um or or what the long-term consequences of some kind of compromises can be and that is unfortunately I fear that's what we're dealing with. And that unicorn point is few and far between. It's one point out of seven, or it's one point out of six with the regular essay that the students do. Uh, and so you can still get a A, you can still get a passing grade, or you can still get the best uh, without it. And you can almost see the kids do the mental math, saying, "Well, I don't need that point if I do everything else that I'm supposed to do in accordance with the rubric." Um, but I like the idea of the fight, nevertheless. I like the idea of the uncertainty, nevertheless. Not, not wanting to get into these waters by introducing this term, but um, <laughs> I'm even reluctant to bring it up just because it's just so it, loaded. <laughs> it's, it's so loaded. But the, the thing is, the classroom should not be a safe space. Say that again your, your your microphone beeped at the
1: key moment the classroom should not be a safe place or safe space you probably need to defend that for a minute because people are picturing wild violence in your classroom and you know well, what they're armed. picturing
0: what they're picturing is kids who are uh in a place free of judgment and free of the consequences of judgment and they are they are thinking that somehow this is now a place where wild accusations and, and and insults and what have you are thrown about reckless abandon but what i mean is you as an individual can learn nothing you cannot inspire aspire to be anything better than you are if you remain in safe spaces both emotionally both intellectually you know whatever however you want to characterize that yeah. You know, um, my, you know, there, you know, people have said, my wife has said that sometimes it is hard to get a rise out of me and on a personal kind of interpersonal sense. Yes, it is. Now I may get worked up about stuff, you know, <laughs> yes. as far as my job goes. And I know it's been a great amusement to you over the years, Absolutely. but thank you. But, um, even the worst kind of things that I've had to endure has been instructive to a certain point. So even, so, if you just take, a, take away the worst kind of ideas and simply talk about challenging someone intellectually, what have you, I think there's value in that. And we have to figure out a way to get to that point. We have to, we have to figure out a way to expand the unicorn point to where it is more of what a kid navigates in a high school classroom. You know, as soon as we started, you know, Maybe it's when we started thinking of, of students as children. And I I hate when people infantilize our students by calling them children or what have you. Because it's problematic. Because it's problematic of the approach that you take towards them. It's it's just problematic of a lot of things. And, this, and, I, and I understand that this is kind of a, a debatable point but I think that there's something to the idea that we grow through adversity. We grow through challenges. And if you're in a safe space, you will never grow. You will stay stagnant, uninformed, unformed, and then ultimately not very interesting.
1: These um, children um, (laughs) learn um, to, I I guess the, the adage, I hate to keep talking about testing, but, but, in a way, it's so central to reform. We can't get away from it. But there's a pithy saying that what you test is what you get. And uh, maybe it, it's more than a pithy saying, but it, it implies that you know, based upon the assessment, you know, students are going to, or children are going to rise to that and, and nothing more because you're putting boundaries on, on what they know. Um, but but what you just said is is really interesting because if, if you're not comfortable challenging a student and making them feel uncomfortable you've put some more boundaries on this so suddenly we've created some laws in the in the classroom right that nobody's going to be uncomfortable we're not going to ask a hard question publicly particularly um, and we're not going to ask anything that's not on that um, rubric or whatever you want to call it Um, so there there are boundaries to what you can talk about what you can test and, and suddenly the student or the child is thinking well, then it would actually be a waste of my time to go outside of this and explore the subject. Um, so, as we talked at the very beginning of this uh, program about the books behind us and the fact that we reread our books and we, we keep our books, um, the students, you know, in this scenario, just to use a, a word picture, are going to, you know, get the books that they need to pass the test and then they're going to just sell those books because they've already gotten what they want out of it. And, and that's what they do it in guess, college,
0: right? That's that's the cost of to write a passage in college at the end thing, of the semester. You yeah. sell your books back.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great image. And I mean, I guess I never sold one of my college books. Mm. Uh, but I, you know, the, the idea is interesting that 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 people would. It's like another pithy saying that you pass a class never to return to it again, you know, the mm. material and and it's sad, you know, particularly something like history, which should just be a starting point. I mean, your class should be the beginning. Of right. a lifelong exploration, uh, but but all of it you know, is is something that the adults, you know, not that child, created. Um, and, and I think we, we we need to deconstruct the perspective not only of the teacher, but of the administrator, and you mentioned the, the parents. But I think everyone is complicit and in, in including the, the the student and right. you know, all of this. So it's this little a- agreement that allows us to get through the day. Um, and it's not any easier when you have three thousand students in a building because you know reform is, is difficult when you have that you know all of those factors very complicated.
0: And maybe this is a nice stopping point because I th- I think we, yeah. looking at looking at this uh, these topics as future podcasts you know topics or what have you, um, but um, I, I think this is something to consider. This is definitely a conversation that needs to be had and we in various ways in our society are good at not asking questions because we don't want to know the answer to it. So, uh, perhaps there's, you know, there's something to be said about, you know, how we go about this. And, and, and yes, maybe some of these alternative models are not practical, but it doesn't mean that their ideas don't have merit. And if you're going to embrace going away from that, you need to accept what is created as a result of it. And so we'll let that that.
1: Sorry Hermila, I, I just didn't don't want to go outside. I mean when we you brought that up. I, I thought, oh boy, we're gonna talk about going outside. And and I try to avoid that. I mean being outside in Texas, there's there's nothing good about it. There are about four or five days that you take a deep breath and say, I love this. But but I, I don't want to go outside
0: ever, you know, unless I have to. Dear listeners, <laughs> whoever you may be, mm-hmm. if there's anyone out there at all. No. This gentleman on the other side of this screen from me is a man who not only does not like being outside, but will mock people who do like being outside. There's no mocking happening here, Mr. Miller. Oh, not here, but you know. You know that field that we used to drive by on the way back from school. And one time, in a feeling of trust and openness, I suggested, you know what? Sometimes when I see a field like that, I just want to get out of the car and run around in it.
1: This is just stupid. I mean, we were driving relatively quickly, <laughs> and every time we, you stopped and you wanted me to pull over the car, and you would frolic. I mean, yes, what, why what, not? What, what brought that on, and, and why would you even remember that? I blocked it out of the image of you <laughs> frolicking in a field. Uh, no, nothing good could come of that. Because your criticism hurt here, Dr. Bourgeois. Well, I'm not going to apologize for that. I was trying to save you from yourself. <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, being outside we got to go outside
1: um, okay well, I'll, I'll do it right now we're going to hang up the phone or whatever we have here and, uh, walk your idea outside. of going
0: outside is walking to the grill which yes. is not necessarily a bad thing No. We're walking to the grill turning the sausages over and then going back inside
1: that's absolutely true I mean there's grass out there but I don't step on it I, I can step on step on the deck there that's it <laughs>
0: let's,
1: let's get back to this another time indeed um, well um goodbye, mister Herr I should say Herr Miller. And so long Herr Doctor
0: Bourgeois.